EK Publishing Media presents the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 6, The Big Day. It's time for the episode that puts the apocalypse into the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. This will be an ongoing story that we expand upon each season, so the episode you're about to hear is merely the first in an ongoing series. Do enjoy it. There's a little something for everyone in this tale. 1. Kayla Just stay in your father's office for ten minutes and then he'll take you to pick up Teresa. That was the last thing Kayla could remember her mother saying before the entire world ended. The world had actually ended a little over 65 years prior in nuclear annihilation, but the figurative world her family and community had pieced together within its ashes would be dashed only minutes after her mother pulled the metal office door closed behind her. Kayla was 19 years old. She wore a pair of baggy digital camo blue pants, a gray t-shirt, and a black sport jacket that matched her boots. She threw her school bag onto the stacks of papers her father had aligned militantly on the back edge of the desk. On the tackboard wall behind his office chair were pictures of her mother and father along with photos of Kayla, her younger sister, Teresa, and her older sister, Nadia. Kayla had been considered the smart one until Teresa turned out to be nothing short of a child prodigy with computers. Kayla had to settle on being the sensible one since Nadia would always be the bully. The three girls shared their mother's brown hair and the mixture of blue and green eyes they had inherited from both parents. Kayla paced the office room and peered out the cracked window to view the airport tarmac below where naval officers were making their way across the grounded airport runway beneath the cloudy gray sky. No one was flying anymore these days. Not since the bombs blew every military base and complex infrastructure to smithereens during what was deemed the big day. It's hard to say specifically why the world decided to nuke itself or even who kicked off the event, but the Wilkinson family line, along with a clutch of other surviving families of the Mars cluster experiment, were spared the initial destruction and the 30 years of violent storms and weather following the nuclear winter that took place after. Kayla's grandfather and great-grandparents were part of an experimental colony on Mars where nine ships of 36 in addition to a single massive return vessel were to colonize Mars for an estimated 85 years before returning to Earth. 41 years into the experiment, the Earth committed suicide, which wasn't on the list of things the Martian colonists were told to expect during the course of the experiment. Without being able to receive shipments of food from Earth regularly, they had to ration and grow their own food on Mars for 25 years before the families had no choice but to load up and head back with the little reserves they had left. There were other problems on return that wouldn't be ironed out as expected. The human body and heart would require regular medical treatment from the gravity difference on Mars. The whole point of the Mars experiment was to test a breakthrough in nanotechnology that was supposed to permanently remedy those very issues. The colonists found upon their return to Earth that there was little left to reclaim. Fort Lauderdale International Airport was one of the only locations in the United States where the barrage of nukes that rained from the heavens failed to deploy or some defensive military parameter actually got through. Weakened by the additional gravity, Kayla's grandparents and the rest of the colonists were given little option but to copulate and begin the repopulation process. Since the Earth was stained a dead yellow color from the huge inland dust storms, the colonists dubbed the last known city of Earth, Ochre. That was the short history of the planet that existed to Kayla and her sisters when they saw the airport under the cloudy Florida afternoon sky. Sure, they learned all about ancient history, the Romans and Greeks, the hoplite warfare that escalated war to guns and cannons, which eventually made way for a weapon powerful enough to eliminate both sides of the battlefield in one blackened evening before a seemingly eternal night. But that was before the big day. Their world was all military, studying and physical performance. 
There was no time for quarrels or games because they were the generation that would bring humanity back from the brink of demise. That was the idea, anyway. Kayla saw her uncle talking to two officers on the tarmac below. He had large, beefy arms, a stern expression, and his brother's, her father's, blue eyes and black hair. She waved. He looked up to the cloudy sky as droplets of rain dotted his gray t-shirt. He couldn't see her. Kayla thought he looked worried about something. He poked one of the men in the shoulder hard and dressed him down with his hands on his hips. The private he was talking to nodded as her uncle clapped him on the shoulder. Sighing, Kayla turned around and made her way to the office door. She told her bladder all the way from school after drinking that cup of crappy vending machine coffee an hour earlier. She stepped into the hall and pressed the handle on the restroom door adjacent to her father's office. It was locked. Someone's in here. Virginia's voice echoed from within the small, single-toilet restroom. Virginia Reeves was the current president's daughter. President William Reeves was only 26 years old, but that's because his father, who was part of their grandparents' generation, was now bedridden from gravitational sickness. The president was good friends with Kayla's father, a first-year baby in 10 years the president's senior. There were a lot of first-year babies, people who were born right after the Mars mission came to an abrupt conclusion in Ochre. Kayla continued down the hall toward the president's office where the door was cracked. She could hear that he was on a conference call, probably why Virginia had opted to use the other restroom instead of the one in the back of the president's office. The office had once belonged to the CEO of the Fort Lauderdale International Airport, so of course he had his own faculties. Kayla quietly pushed open the door to the president's office. William Reeves looked up and saw her. He gave a half-wave before turning his eyes to a schematic of the airport on his desk. If we don't have that wall monitored twice as often, we'll have more Morlocks finding their way onto the tarmac. I know we're short on hands, but we gotta do more with less as always. Kayla heard the conversation as she snuck into the restroom with a grin on her face. He glanced at her and smirked before she slid the partition door closed for privacy. He started talking about furthering the defensive parameter deeper into the junk south toward the ruins of Miami. Everything outside of Ochre, and pretty much the United States in general, was called the junk, since every major city and structure had been reduced to debris and rubble like that of a giant junkyard. Inhabiting the junk were the mutated and mostly feral survivors of the nuclear apocalypse. People had lived through the bombing, surviving the radiation and harsh winters by staying underground, but they were more animal than human. Without the structure of families and with the harshness of the environment after the big day, civility and rule broke down into the survival of the fittest. Most of the first-hand survivors of the bombings died within the first ten years due to radiation poisoning. It wasn't enough time to teach their offspring the values of the old world. People became little more than baboons, clubbing one another over the last few strips of meat from the bones of a deer. Those people and all outsiders from Ochre were deemed Morlocks after the abominable night creatures from H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Kayla had always thought it was a heavy-handed approach to outsiders, to lump them all in that way, but most people from the outside couldn't be dealt with. They didn't speak any fluent language, their first instinct was to attack, and even feeble attempts to bargain with them had gone mediocre at best. The current issue with the Morlocks was that they were multiplying at an alarming rate, filling the junk with dangerous inbred feral human beings. Kayla finished in the restroom, flushing the toilet and putting the seat down before washing her hands. She absentmindedly pushed open the door partition and zoned out after turning off the water and letting her hands dry on the rim of the glass sink. She was thinking about Gary Fisher from her class and what a jackass he had been for making Madison feel terrible about her reading, and then there was a gasp. Bang! It was the unmistakable sound of a gunshot. She flicked her eyes to the mirror to see President William Reeves slumped over his chair. Bang! 
two more gunshots as President Reeves' fate was sealed. A private stepped into view, lowering his service pistol. Kayla recognized him as one of the younger men her uncle had been talking to earlier on the tarmac, the man he had pushed. He looked up and saw her reflection in the mirror. His mouth fell. He had curly black hair and the beginnings of a goatee forming around his lips. Footsteps echoed in the hall. The man turned and ran. Kayla reflexively dashed out of the restroom to see the man running down the hall. Behind her, she could hear the sitting elected president of the United States of America, which seriously wasn't saying much, choking on his own blood. 2. Virginia Virginia Reeves sat on the toilet lid with her notebook in her lap as she tried to write her poetry in peace without having to listen to her father's monotonous voice in the background. Someone had rattled the door handle earlier as she finished the second verse. It was after the three gunshots that Virginia slapped the notebook closed and stood up. She stared at the door as she heard heavy footsteps pound down the hall outside. A second later, the locked door handle rattled maddeningly before someone punched the door and ran off. More gunshots echoed from nearby, followed by volleys of return fire. Virginia's heart thrummed in her chest as she reached for the doorknob. The sound of a pair of lighter boots filled the hall beyond before someone else hammered on the door. Virginia? It was Kayla Wilkinson. Virginia opened the door to ask what was happening. Before she could, Kayla grabbed her by her digital camo jacket front and threw her into James Wilkinson's office across the hall before slamming the door closed. James was standing behind his desk with his desk phone in his hand, his eyes wide. He had short black hair and a beard and mustache on his distinguished face. James hung up the phone. What's going on? he demanded. Someone just assassinated the president, Kayla yelled. She was delirious and half-crazed. Sweat covered the chest and armpits of her gray t-shirt as she dumped her backpack from the chair where her father had removed it from his desk. A spike of terror rose in Virginia's chest. What did you just say? Kayla ignored her as she propped the chair in front of the doorknob to prevent anyone from entering. Virginia was about to lose her temper when they heard gunshots fill the corridor outside. People were screaming from the halls as James Wilkinson picked up the phone and began dialing numbers to no avail. The whole place is shut down, he swore as he slammed the phone down on the receiver. Someone tried to push open the door. The chair locked into place, preventing the intruder from getting in. That won't hold for long. He wiped his chin and beard, scanning the office before him for an answer. The window, Kayla said as the door was jammed by the chair again. James Wilkinson opened the closet door behind him and grabbed his backpack with his computer and other personal effects. Kayla pulled open the office window and peered down to see the aluminum overhead of a walkway below. The Wilkinson's black solar electric jeep was parked with a line of other refurbished solar electric cars on the tarmac below. Kayla turned around from the window and beckoned for Virginia to go first. She was the now ex-president's daughter in the midst of some kind of coup taking place all over the airport. Historically, that made her life worth more than anyone else's at that time. Virginia's world had become surreal as she moved toward the window and felt the sprinkles of rain on her cheeks with the wind whipping across the empty fields of the airport. Five minutes ago, she had been sitting in the restroom and everything was normal and structured. Now, she was being ushered to the nearest office window as gunfire continued pattering through the terminals across the tarmac. It's not a long drop, Kayla said. Says you. She gaped at Kayla. The chair scraped another inch across the floor as several people were trying to push through the barrier, yelling to one another that they heard voices from within. James Wilkinson darted across the office and sat at the base of the door with his back pressed against it to give the two girls more time. That was enough to trigger Virginia to hoist herself and her notebook through the window regardless of the consequences. The humid wind hit her face as she crashed onto the aluminum overhead. Kayla climbed out and dropped onto the metal cover next to her. 
Shortly after, James clambered out and let his boots connect with the overhead beside them. The three followed the metal rooftop and dropped to the crackled asphalt tarmac below. Yellow weeds and shrubs peered from the broken airstrips that had fallen into disrepair over the years. Jogging to the jeep, Kayla and Virginia climbed into the back seat as James climbed into the driver's seat and slammed the door. He kept his head low as he fumbled through his keyring with his shaking fingers for the jeep key. Isolating it, he plugged the key into the ignition and started the jeep. The back window exploded with the pinging ricochet of a bullet as James backed out from the parking spot and gunned the engine toward the road nearby. 3. James It didn't take much for James to begin panicking. Wendy, his wife and the girl's mother, was on the opposite side of the airport. Fear, worry, and exasperation filled him as he watched the airport get farther away in the rearview mirror. What were the odds that she would still be alive with all that shooting? She was in a different part of the airport, so maybe she would just become a hostage. He glanced in the rearview mirror to see Virginia's stark white expression as she stared straight ahead. He thought about turning around to go back for Wendy, but he had to get Virginia and Kayla away from danger. That's when he remembered Teresa and pressed the accelerator down to the floor. He drove them down the tarmac to the security gate and booth where Larry Phillips was standing with an assault rifle draped over his front. Larry was bald and a few years younger than James, but the two usually enjoyed a poker game with the rest of the guys once every two weeks on a Friday night. James slowed to a stop next to him as Larry pressed the button in the booth to lift the security gate. The drizzle had started to form bigger drops as the afternoon rain picked up. Larry glared at the three of them, peering through the passenger window. What in God's name is going on out there? I think William Reeves is dead, James answered. Larry swore and turned around as he shook his head. I gotta get the girls out of here, said James, but I'll be back for Wendy in a few minutes. Watch your ass until I get back. James had already started pulling away as Larry nodded. He squinted at the rearview mirror. Beyond the broken back window, three solar electric cars drove down the road toward the security booth beneath the blue-gray sky. He turned onto the 595 interstate and passed the line of rusty old abandoned cars that had been moved to clear the road. He crossed through the broken barriers and exited the freeway into their neighborhood only to witness a new horror. Every single house on every block of designated military housing was ablaze or had already burned to the skeletal remains of the building. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! Virginia began sobbing uncontrollably as they slowly rolled past the cindery carnage that had been their lives. James pressed the accelerator and turned toward Teresa's school. They drove past the gnarled dead trees as twisted relics remained rooted to the earth between the houses and buildings that had lived on into the new world. The high school was also on fire, and they could hear gunfire in the distance. James punched the steering wheel and pushed the jeep quickly down the road. He turned down 28th Street while slamming the butt of his palm on the rim of the wheel in fury. Watch out! Kayla yelled as none other than Teresa Wilkinson stepped out from the trees into the road with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She wore a big black coat that was two sizes too large for her. Her frizzy brown hair was pulled back into a ponytail under a lavender corduroy cap she had had for the last ten years. The right lens of her black-rimmed glasses had been cracked. James slammed the car to a halt before he could hit her. Teresa looked pissed as she slowly walked around the side of the jeep and got in next to Virginia. Maybe it was the sudden stop of the vehicle, the smart-ass look on Teresa's face, or the smell of nicotine filling the cabin, maybe all of the above. But despite all that had happened so far today, a rage that James had only experienced a few times throughout his 36 years of life flooded through him as he pulled the car over to the curb and turned around to grab the quarter of remaining white on Teresa's smoldering cigarette. He threw the cigarette out the window and pointed at her as his face felt hot. What on earth is wrong with you? He demanded. 
I raised you specifically not to- Dad! Kayla yelled. Dad, drive! Three Morlocks with bandage-wrapped faces broke from the tree line with makeshift clubs in hand. One of them heaved a flaming bottle that missed and exploded on the pothole-riddled street as James put distance between them. This isn't over, he yelled and glared at Teresa through the rearview mirror. 4. Teresa In Florida, it's usually around 2 in the afternoon that a gentle storm starts to blow in from south to north as warm, saturated air rises through the atmosphere and precipitates as rain. Right after the bombs fell, this process created oily black rain that was pure strontium-90, each opaque droplet 1,000 times more radioactive than the blast at the center of each nuclear explosion that took place throughout the country. Strontium-90 has a half-life of 28.79 years. After the black rain fell upon the landscape for days and days, it seeped into the soil and encased everything in the element. The human body absorbs strontium-90 as calcium, so the radiation will literally seep into the bones of the body. Most who come into contact with the substance, depending on the level of exposure, can expect to live between 3 days and 10 years before cancer begins to break down the body's DNA. Teresa knew all of that. She had known it since she was 10 years old as they drilled those details into the students annually the way you start with dinosaurs and world history and progress to the agricultural revolution 15,000 years ago. It wasn't that she cared about being smart or significantly more intelligent than her peers, but that she was bored. She retained most of the information she gathered and could recite it perfectly later so she never failed a test. She had already studied ahead so she knew as much or more than any teacher that was going from a workbook, and who could justify being stuck indoors for hours on end during a perfectly cloudy afternoon such as this one. Those were her excuses for why she ducked out through the side door of the high school as the janitor went to dump the trash just after the final lunch period had ended. Crossing the street, Teresa stepped over the fallen wire fence and was enveloped by the trees and ferns of brush that crowded the undergrowth of any thicket of trees in Florida and ochre. She sat on her smoking rock with her legs hanging over the stone's edge. The stone lay in the placid clearing and crossed over a small stream. Tyler Brigham's, her secret boyfriend as of three weeks ago, had rolled her 18 cigarettes from his aunt's small tobacco farm. Teresa knew her father would be furious if he found out about her growing cigarette habit, but things would escalate to threats if he found out his youngest, brightest daughter, who was only a month into her 18th year, had been seeing a young man regularly. There would be violence if he ever found out the full extent of her and Tyler's relationship. That, unfortunately, wouldn't be an issue Teresa would need to worry about for much longer. The relaxing sensation she had been aching for filled her from top to bottom as she pulled the pure tobacco cigarette and felt the high of it. She watched the smoldering cigarette ash on its own beyond her nose as she lay on her back to stare at the rolling gray clouds in the sky overhead. She sucked the cigarette and closed her eyes before hearing the rattling of gunfire nearby. Sitting up, Teresa put away the case of 18 rolled cigarettes that Tyler had given her into her hip bag. The smell of smoke filled the air. Not of cigarette smoke, but of burning plaster, insulation, and rubber. Teresa heard the continuing gunfire from the high school as she approached the tree line. She heard rapid footsteps in the trees behind her and suddenly felt someone jump onto her back. Teresa was not helpless, and this was a foolish move for an attacker. She reached between her legs and grabbed the knobby ankles of her Morlock assailant. She then fell onto her and his back with all her weight, knocking the air from his stomach. Teresa recovered awkwardly and slipped on a slick stone, but caught herself as her glasses slipped off her nose and fell onto another rock. Snatching her glasses from the forest floor, Teresa scrambled to a run with the Morlock struggling to breathe behind her. Her left eye viewed through a spiderweb of broken glass within her black glasses' frames. Somehow, through all of the struggle, she had clenched the tip of her cigarette in her teeth and kept hold of it. 
She pulled refreshing lungfuls of nicotine and oxygen as she stumbled into the street between the trees. Her father's black solar electric jeep slammed to a halt just feet in front of her, idling as Teresa, shell-shocked but sensible enough to understand the need for haste, climbed into the back seat of the jeep next to a sobbing Virginia Reeves. It all happened so quickly. Her father pulled over and yanked the cigarette from her lips before yelling at her. A moment later, the Morlocks emerged from the trees and they sped off. Did either of you get Nadia's schedule for today? Their father asked as he turned down different streets to get over to the dusty 95 interstate. The freeway had been cleared just after Teresa was born and was now one of the main military highways connecting the different zones of Ochre. She doesn't even live with us anymore, said Kayla. Why would we know her schedule? I'm just asking, he replied. Teresa caught him shooting daggers at her through the rearview mirror occasionally. A black truck suddenly pulled out into the highway next to them and followed alongside their jeep. Teresa saw her father make a move for something on his hip before she heard the click of his G-17 pistol. They pulled into the parking lot of the desolate Amtrak subway station off the freeway as the truck pulled up next to them. Speak of the devil, Teresa said as their older sister Nadia slammed the truck door behind her as she rounded the vehicle. She wore a weird polymer suit that hugged her figure well, but they noticed the front of the suit had a giant shotgun blast mark across the lower part of the chest plate. Nadia grabbed the AR-15 rifle from the trunk in a bag of ammunition as their father got out of the truck and embraced her. Where's mom? Nadia's eyes flicked between them as Teresa, Kayla, and Virginia exited the jeep. 5. Nadia Nadia felt Dr. Richard Gross's lips on hers as he finished strapping the dark gray RG combat suit to Nadia's form. She had started working with Dr. Gross's EAW facility seven months earlier on her 22nd birthday. Her input and assistance had become so invaluable to him that he began spending all his time at work and far less time with his wife and two sons. She didn't mean for the affair to begin, and never thought of herself as someone who would find herself as the wedge that could break apart a marriage, but Nadia wasn't interested in destroying Dr. Gross's marriage or having a long-term relationship with him. The world had ended. Good men were in short supply, and those men Nadia did meet on a regular basis were jockish, all meat and no brains. That had been fun when she was 18, but she grew a fond respect for her body since she had graduated through the lower ranks of their military culture. The objective was to repopulate the earth, and if that was the inevitable point, then she wanted her child to be of the man of her own choosing. All men and women were required to join one of the two current branches of military, navy or army. Nadia had joined the navy. She blew out her eardrum when their boat tipped while trying to change courses to avoid an approaching dust storm during a routine scouting mission off the nearby Florida coast. After that, she was stuck inside doing secretarial work for doctors while pushing papers for naval officers. She had heard about Dr. Gross's facility and had been on a waiting list to work with him on testing experimental weapons and armor. When her turn arrived, she opted to leave her weekend job in the cage wrapping cables and organizing electronic parts for the electronics department to work for him full-time. He was a notorious workaholic who wanted his assistants to keep pace with him. So far, that had been a tall order to fill. Nadia had been a breath of fresh air as his other assistants had been yawners and slack-jawed gawkers. She followed his every instruction and only asked questions when it would allow her to improve the outcome of his experiments. Nadia's focus allowed Dr. Gross to eliminate her internship at the six-month mark so that he could hire her full-time. Two weeks later, the affair began. It had been Nadia who moved first, but Dr. Gross didn't shut her down. They indulged and gave in to the tension that had been building between them over the last few months during a two-hour power outage after the rest of the staff opted to take the afternoon off. Their relationship continued regularly over the following weeks. 
Dr. Gross and Nadia had the research facility to themselves during the lunch break that day, so they did their thing before Nadia was to test the RG combat suit. Dr. Gross had made the combat suit from the Technora parachutes they had left over from the Mars mission. The suit was a little tight for her in the groin area, but the upper torso of the uniform was fine. The leggings probably need more breaking in, Dr. Gross said as he tried to loosen the straps on the leggings but couldn't. He sighed and got to his feet next to her. Guess this will be the female model of the combat uniform. It'll have to be, Nadia said, trying to ease the tightness down below. Dr. Gross went to kiss her when the bell on the front door rang. Both of them glanced at the clock over the workbench nearby that was covered with tools and strips of unused Technora. Gladys and Eva weren't supposed to be back for another 30 minutes. Dr. Gross took off his glasses and wiped them with a cloth from his pocket as he made his way to the front hall. We're on lunch now, he said, disappearing into the front corridor of the facility. Nadia flexed the gloved hands of the suit before looking over her shoulder at the tight seat of her uniform. You'll have to come back late. Boom! Nadia's attention fired forward as two marines with red stockings on their heads entered the workshop with a combat shotgun at the ready. Nadia's jaw dropped as they turned the corner with the shotgun nozzle directed at her. She shook her head and put her hands up. Boom! Her feet left the ground and she was thrown with such tremendous force backward that she broke through the wooden restroom door behind her. Grab all the weapons, one of the men said. Nadia threw a shaky hand under the folded AR-15 mounted on the inner panel of the dusty restroom door frame. The pain in her chest and stomach was immense. At least one of her ribs was fractured, or it felt like it at the top of her breath. Pulling the gun down from its mount, she tore the magazine taped onto the side from the gun and rammed it into the bottom chamber before cocking it and turning off the safety. One of the men entered her line of sight. She braced the gun against her shoulder and fired. Spent, still smoking bullet shells bounced and flew from the side of the rifle. The sound was deafening as she pressed the massive kick of the weapon into her armpit. Her assailant whipped and danced around as the bullets caught him before he fell to the ground in a pool of his own blood. Pull! The other attacker yelled as Nadia pushed against the wall of pain forcing her down and crouched against the frame of the restroom doorway with the rifle's nozzle at the ready. The man ran into her view but her aim was off. A hail of bullets turned the workbench behind him to splinters. The kick pushed her aim to the ceiling as the man jogged out through the front of the facility. Nadia grimaced as she lowered the smoking weapon to her knee. She took a deep, painful breath and staggered into motion past the dead marine on the floor. Her anger turned to horror as she saw Dr. Gross's sprawled form on the ground in the corridor leading to the front. He was still gasping for breath through painful sobs. There was more gunfire from outside, thrumming from different parts of the dilapidated ruins of Ochre. She stumbled past her dead lover's reaching grasp to slam and lock the front door of the building. She stopped at one of the windows to look out. People in the different factions of military fatigues along with Morlocks were looting the storefronts and stealing the cars out front. She had no idea how things had fallen apart so suddenly, but she couldn't take any chances. She needed to find her family and see if they could find a way out of Ochre. First things first, she barred the back door and all the windows before shutting off the power to the building. Fortunately, the facility was built like a fortress. It wouldn't be hard for someone to get in eventually, but she would be long gone before they busted through the heavy-duty bar latches at either entrance. Nadia heard the screaming of innocent people along with the echo of gunfire in the distance as she unbuckled the latches of the upper torso of the RG combat uniform. What incentive could anyone possibly have for starting a mutiny in such a small community? Lifting her arms to pull off the chest piece, Nadia took off her gray sweat-covered tank top as well. A big purple and red bruise marked her lower ab and rib under her right breast. She took a deep breath and pressed on the tender spot where the shotgun blast had met its mark. She pulled and pushed air through her lips as she filled and emptied her lungs against the pain. 
Maybe it wasn't as bad as she thought. There was a gentle hitch at the bottom of the rib at the pinnacle of her breath intake, but she didn't think the rib itself was broken after all. Regardless, she grabbed a self-adhering sports wrap from the medical shelf in Dr. Gross's office, tore it open and began unraveling it to tightly pull her lower abdomen and chest. There were two hooks at the end of the wrap that she pulled and hooked to the bandage. Nadia took a deep breath with about 20% less pain than before. She tore open two packs of extra-strength Tylenol and swallowed them before drinking an entire bottle of water from the medical shelf. Dr. Richard Gross had been dead for ten minutes by the time Nadia was able to get to him. Not that there was anything she could have done to prevent his death. Her father was the son of an astronaut. In turn, the family grew up ingrained to view every scenario mathematically. At a position of loss, what executive decision can be taken to prevent the loss from becoming a catastrophic mission-ending failure? Is it worth sacrificing the mission to save someone's life? Sometimes it is. But Dr. Gross took a full shotgun blast to the chest. The mission objective had changed to keeping herself alive while preventing the loss of resources within the facility. Nadia had just finished pulling the dark gray combat suit's upper torso over her head when she heard banging on the front door. She latched the four latches on the suit and shifted it for comfort before throwing a bag of tools, guns, and ammunition over her shoulder. She picked up the rifle by its still warm barrel and carried it at the ready. Clang! Someone shot at the front door. Nadia grabbed a Zippo lighter and a ring of keys from Dr. Gross's office. Flicking the lighter to life, she set his lab coat and jacket on the wooden rack built into the wall on fire. She rolled both the acetylene torches on each workbench all the way open, hearing them hiss loudly as she made her way for the back door. She drew back the bar on the door and exited into the back alleyway behind the facility. She staggered to a run with the AR-15 in her grasp, the ammo bag banging into her hip. She tossed the gun and bag into the trunk. She had just climbed into the cabin of Dr. Gross's truck when the windows of the facility exploded outward from the pressure explosions of the gas tanks. A crowd of looters entered the alleyway behind her as she peeled out and exited into the city streets. The mission was now to meet where their father had always told them to meet in the event of a citywide emergency, the old Amtrak subway station. 6. James Something happened at the airport. James Wilkinson replied to Nadia as the five of them stood next to the Amtrak subway ticket station. You need to get Virginia out of danger. I'm going back for Wendy now. Are you out of your mind? Nadia squinted at him. Did you see the madness on the way here? I did, but the terminal where your mother was located has a roof entrance. She knows how to hold up there if anything happens. He glanced at the shotgun blast and the way Nadia was bracing herself at an awkward angle. Are you okay? I've been better, but I don't know what to do. Nadia shook her head. Their father heaved a heavy sigh. He massaged his face in frustration. I can't leave without Wendy. Take my bag and stay in the ticket station. No, we're not doing this, Nadia declared. I'm not leaving without my wife. He glared at Nadia who stood at his same height. Other than his brother, who was likely dead now, Nadia was the closest thing to adult family he had left. He returned to the jeep and withdrew his bag to give to Kayla. Stay here. If I'm not back in no later than 45 minutes, you go through that tunnel in your truck and see if you can go up the east coast to New York. We have reason to believe there may be survivors there, but that's our only shot. Dad! Nadia grabbed his arm before he could slide into the driver's seat. Mom wouldn't want you to leave us like this. You have a duty to your family as a father. True, but I also have a duty as a husband. He got in and slammed the jeep's door. Be back soon. James Wilkinson gave his three daughters a final look before he accelerated and turned the corner. The thunder of gunfire echoed through the small settlement of Ochre as he made for the airport. The good thing about the end of the world is the lack of traffic. 
Morlocks didn't drive, and the idiots who were involved in whatever this ridiculous event was were too busy looting the immediate neighborhood surrounding the airport to go joyriding through the city streets. The general lack of upkeep on the streets made driving a chore regardless. James approached the security gate they had passed through earlier to see the reflective arm broken on the grass nearby. He didn't need to know whose blood was splattered all over the interior of the security booth, but he could take a wild guess. He continued toward the ominously dark airport as the afternoon grew dim beneath the crescendo of the afternoon thunderstorm. Driving past the terminal housing the head offices where they had escaped earlier, James made for the terminal at the end of the line of airport buildings where Wendy worked. He didn't hear any gunfire, which he took as a good sign. He parked behind the cafeteria and got out. The idea of going through the interior of the terminal to get to the roof was ludicrous. He readied his G-17 and put it in the back waistband of his military pants as he approached the rusty old ladder that was bolted to the wall of the building. James climbed, surpassing his initial fear of heights to pull himself up to the roof with ease. Wendy, he called. Wendy, are you up here? Making his way to the door to the roof, James stopped at the sight of his younger brother and two assistants carrying semi-automatic weaponry. Stephen Wilkinson stood with his hands in his pockets, ignoring the rain dotting his gray t-shirt that was a size too small for him. You always were predictable, Jim. What is going on? James spread his hands. The warm afternoon rain began to patter the terminal roof. Liberation. That's what's happening. The ideal of the United States, with the president in his executive position, the military firmly in place, and the inevitable spread of its government is dead. That's idiocy, James spat. No, Jim, Stephen said. It ends here and now. We're going to make a new government, start from scratch construct laws that make sense, and extend leniency to those who punish corruption instead of rewarding it as we've always done and continue to do to this day. You're not making any sense, James shook his head. I need you to tell me where you hid the president's daughter, Jim, Stephen said. I have too much respect for Wendy to parade her out here and make a show of things. You're out of your mind, James drew the G-17 from his waistband and directed it at Stephen. His assistants pointed their weapons at James, but Stephen stepped forward with his hands raised. Before bullets start flying, James, said Stephen, you should know that the S&D bot is already on its way to Virginia Reeves. It was able to collect enough DNA from the hairbrush she used in the restroom regularly. I don't need you to tell me anything. Why are you doing this, Stephen? James asked. Because there's got to be a better way. Stephen motioned with his chin at James and turned around. James's eyes widened as he tried to correct his aim, but it was too late. If he'd had the power to murder his brother in cold blood, it hadn't manifested itself on that rainy afternoon. His world ended in a rattle of gunfire, and the feeling of rain on his forehead and cheeks as his consciousness escaped him. This concludes Episode 6 of the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. For more stories like the ones you'll hear on the podcast, go to audibletrial.com slash apocalypstheaterpodcast. Link is in the episode description. If you want to get my latest audiobook, The Last Necromancer, for free, check out my website at ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, purchase one of my audiobooks from Audible, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2020.